We are back. So we are at the first week of the month. And if you've been following along with us on the first week of every month, we've been doing a different series. We've been working through uh, the book of Psalms. And uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at one of my favorite Psalms. I feel like I hit the jackpot uh, in getting to preach this text. And I have Chuck to partially thanks for that because he preached last week so I could preach this. And it's a short psalm that we're going to be covering, but it's also one of my favorite ones in, um, in that it helps us understand who we are in light of who God is. So let me pray for us real quick, uh, and then we'll get started with um, the reading, and then we'll, we'll take a look at the majesty of God and how it shapes how we can understand ourselves and one another. This is the word of the Lord to you and I. O Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for, uh, we thank you for this sweet word that you've given us uh, through the psalmist. What a wonderful and somewhat shocking reminder of, of um, how you've made us and what that means about who we are. And more importantly, uh, how glorious and beautiful you are. And if there's ever a time that we need to be reminded of uh, just the inherent beauty that you possess, that you're worthy of worship because of all your majesty and the inherent worth that you've given us as people made in your image, it is now. And so we pray that you would minister to your people, that you would give us words of truth uh, that encourage us and strengthens our faith and that we would come away with a deeper understanding of just how wonderful your love for us is and just how glorious our calling is as your children. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Uh, you know, in thinking about this message this week, I, um, you know, I thought about something that uh, has been a practice in my life and uh, something I know has been a practice in Rob's life and a lot of people that we um, have shared life with, a spiritual life with, and that's something called a gratitude list. You know, when I was putting together this sermon, I was just First, I was challenged to rearrange how often I make assumptions about uh, who God is and who I am in light of that. And reading this psalm also was a huge encouragement to me um, and a reminder of just how beautiful that relationship is that I have uh, with God as my father. And it reminded me of a practice that I've, I've had in my own life for many years called the gratitude list. It's something that's actually very common for people that are in recovery uh, from alcohol and drugs. And, Basically what it is, is this, this basic spiritual practice 
Uh, and it's actually, I think, pretty popular in a lot of different circles these days, but it's a basic spiritual practice where when we become overwhelmed or um, distracted from um, the reality of our relationship with a power greater than ourselves, and we become frustrated with the circumstances of our life or different ways that we struggle, a basic practice and discipline is to stop, to write a gratitude list, and to think about things that you're grateful for. And Psalm 8 is like a perfect biblical example of a gratitude list. And so that's about as much of an intro as this sermon needs. That's all we're going to do this morning. I mean, I, I, if there's ever a time that we could benefit from thinking about things to be grateful for, it's now. And so we're going to just take a few minutes and do that. The uh, big idea in this passage is pretty straightforward. Um, and that's that when we read this psalm, when we read God's word, we see that he is truly worthy of praise because he reveals his majesty in creation, in humanity, and especially in his son. And so we'll think about how he does that uh, in what we see, in who we are, and how he's made us, and how he does that perfectly in Jesus. Uh, so let's get started. You know, anybody that knows me knows that um, I am an avid outdoorsman. And so I, as much as I want to say that this is a psalm of creation, you know, there's this group of psalms in the Old Testament that are called psalms of creation that really marvel at the beauty of everything that God's made. Uh, it's not. It's actually, a, it's a psalm of praise. Or as I had mentioned in my own studies, I realized this is really a psalm of gratitude that David is penning for us. Uh, it is interesting to note, though, that like, in the first stanza, or the first section of this psalm, the first thing that he focuses on is the beauty of the created order, namely uh, the heavens, and how that really is one of the main ways that we're able to comprehend and really marvel at and see God's majesty on display for us. And the reason why is because one of the things that God embeds into creation is he embeds his glory, a sense of his presence, his power and his glory into everything that he's made. And he creates us in such a way that we see that and we can understand it on a basic level. Uh, if you see right in the beginning of the psalm, it says, uh, our, our Lord, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth and that you have set your glory above the heavens. And the first thing that the psalm points to here is the awe-inspiring glory that's on display in everything that you and I look at. And just that on, on its own, if we just stop and think about that, how often do you get up, get dressed, on your way to work, to a meeting, wherever you're going, walk outside and stop in awe-inspired worship of God at everything he's created? If we're, if we're honest, that's not very common. I certainly didn't do it this morning. Full confession, I'm preaching to myself first. Um, <laughs> It's interesting to note that the author of the psalm is David, right? And if you don't know um, anything about David's personal life, we're reading a psalm that was written by a man who grew up as a shepherd. So this is the reflection of a man who grew up spending many nights um, in open fields, tending for a flock underneath the open skies. And unlike the modern mind that's influenced by all these um, secular and worldly theories about who man is and uh, how the created order came to be, David isn't moved to conclude that uh, man is meaningless or some kind of a mistake or a mutation of nature itself, but really it leads him to marvel at the majesty of a God that he knows is at work behind all of that, a God that he sees um, in the heavens. 
In verse 4, it says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. And so again, we're reminded that David is looking up at the night skies. He's seeing the moon and the stars that God has set in place. We know that this is a nighttime psalm. That's not all that common. But in this psalm, we don't hear anything about the sun or the sunshine. But he's standing under a nightlit sky filled with stars and with the moon. And inherent in that is God's creative power. God's flexing his creative power and his beauty and everything that he's made. And David is marveling at that and taking it all in. And, you know, uh, if you are familiar with our church in particular, or you're a member, you know that we, one of the things that we value very much is um, creative mediums, the creative arts as a medium for communicating the beauty and the truth of the gospel to people. And in our congregation, we have a huge number of amazing artists. And we, for a number of years, we did this event that we call the Beautiful Disaster, which is um, this event where we would have artists and musicians come and uh, display their artwork. And when it, I am not artistic, anybody will tell you, you can ask my wife, if I draw you stick figures, that's like a Monet in my world. But uh, we have all these beautiful artists who would come, they would play music, uh, they would put their artwork on display. And when I would show up, especially the first two years, I was really caught off guard at the at the nature of everyone's artwork and how beautiful it was. And that all these people that I saw all the time were able to produce all these things that were beautiful. And also how all those pieces of art in some ways communicated something about the artist. And so I would see them in a different light and be able to understand them in a different way after I had seen their artwork. You know, in the same way, when we're reading this psalm or we read about how God reveals things about himself, the beauty of his nature through what he's given us in the created order, we learn something about him. In this psalm, if you notice, it begins and it ends with his majesty, the fact that he reveals his glory to us in the world that he's given to us to enjoy. Uh, and God's artwork is always on display in that. Uh, one of the favorite places that I love to go to, period, but especially one of my favorite places to uh, stargaze is Yosemite National Park. It's north of here in the Sierra Nevadas. And um, I'm actually going to be going with a group of the men from our church on a hiking trip in a couple months. And we'll be up there hiking and camping. And every time I have the opportunity to go up there and hike, I love to stargaze. And I actually have some images that I wanted to share with you as we're speaking about God's artwork that Jason's going to put up in a moment here. And what they show us is they show us that when we look up into the night sky and we see God's handiwork on display, filled with awe. I think you actually should be seeing one of the images right now. This is a place called Tulumne Meadows. And above it, you could see the Milky Way galaxy is just strewn across the sky. And when we look at this, we see God's, uh, God, he's flexing his creative uh, power and he's showing his glory and his handiwork um, in the stars and in the moon and in the night sky. You know, I, I love um, all things sci-fi. I love astronomy, although I'm not very well versed in it. And I was reading uh, this week about the psalm and putting the message together and I started wondering like what you know, how many stars are in the, gal gal the Milky Way galaxy, our galaxy that we live in? And while they don't know, astronomers' best estimates is that there's somewhere around 100 billion stars uh, in the Milky Way galaxy. 
And on top of that, they theorize that um, just out, out of what we know and can guess in the created order that we see and know exists, they believe there's somewhere around 100 to 200 uh, in God's created order. And there may even be more. That's just what they can reasonably can conclude. And when you think about that, I mean, it is amazing. You think about verses like Psalm 147, where the psalmist says that God created all the heavens and all the earth, that he determined the number of the stars and that he gives each and every one of them their very own name. And when we think about that, we look at that, the psalmist is writing in a poetic sense, saying all this is the work of his fingers. Um, and I love that phrase. It's almost as if he's saying that, you know, you see children when they do finger painting, it's almost as if this is what God does just for fun. Boom, here's the Milky Way galaxy. Boom, here's a hundred billion stars. Boom, here's a hundred million galaxies, just because I can, and just because it's fun. It's almost like God is the ultimate Bob or Ross in some sense, that he never makes a mistake, that everything he creates is beautiful, and he loves what he does when he creates uh, the heavenly order. You know, the first time I ever went to Yosemite, I went with my oldest daughter, and we did a, um, we did a nature tour in the valley floor. And uh, it was a tour that was at the end of the day. It started at sunset and we talked about geology and a ranger would explain to us all the geological formations that were there. And You would stay after sunset and then you would do stargazing. And um, as we were going along on the tour, we befriended a couple who was there with us and they became our hiking partners uh, during the tour. And they asked me where I was at, where I was from and, and what career path I was in. And at the time I was much younger and I was in Bible college and I told them that I was studying in, for, in Bible college with the hopes of going into ministry. And they weren't believers, they weren't even Christians. And they told me that, they're very polite and we had a great conversation the whole time. And they said periodically through our tour, they said, you know, that's one of the things when we're out here in nature, it's just so hard to believe that in, in, in light of all this, in light of nature and how beautiful and vast it is, that we're really something special, that we're created special and that we have a special relationship with some power greater than ourselves, just seems unbelievable to me. And, you know, at the time I didn't say this, but I was thinking in my heart, you know, even with the knowledge that we are created by God, that's really hard to believe sometimes. You know, and I was sitting there thinking like, yeah, I, you know, in a lot of days I don't feel so special myself. Uh, the idea that in light of all of the created order, all the beauty and complexity that we see in it, that God says that we are significant really can be hard for us to believe on any given day. Anybody who's ever had the opportunity to do any kind of mountain climbing, any hiking, going out into the wilderness, even going out on uh, the ocean, being out in nature and having you know, that mountaintop experience where you see the vast expanse of um, the created order, we think to ourselves 99.9% .9 of the time, when we look at the created order, we think to ourselves, who am I in comparison to all this? I mean, it's very rare that somebody's like, I am bigger than all of this, you know, and I am going to crush all of this. What we usually walk away thinking is like, man, in, in, in light of all this, I really am nothing special. I am so insignificant. And that's one of the things that's so amazing about this short psalm is when we read Psalm 8, that's actually not what the psalmist concludes. 
It's not that he looks at the heavens and think these heavens are so majestic in and of themselves. In me, I'm insignificant. I'm nothing. I'm meaningless. He actually concludes just the opposite. If you notice, the first thing he concludes is he asks out loud, what is man that you are mindful of him? David is wondering aloud as he looks up into the sky and he sees God's glory on full display. He's wondering aloud in light of you making all of these things with all of their beauty, all of their power, all of their majesty. What am I that you are mindful of me? The same God who created everything that we see and experience is saying that he is mindful of us personally. That he not only is mindful of us, but that he actually desires to care for you and I. What's most astonishing, if you read this psalm, is that the God who created everything that he, that he has given to mankind to see and experience and to have dominion over is meant to communicate to him that God wants a relationship with him. If you look at the planets, the galaxies, we saw these pictures of the Milky Way galaxy, just the galaxy that we live in. And you think about the fact that there's hundreds and millions of galaxies in existence. The fact that he says that you and I are on his mind is astonishing. That he's thinking about us. In all of his majesty, and all of his glory, God thinks about you. And he desires to care about you. You know, when we read mindful here, uh, really what it's highlighting for us is God's compassion and his grace towards us as people made in his image. And that's because God knows that we are weak and frail, that we've been affected by sin, that we are fallen beings. And even though we're made in his image, that we have um, frailties that we cannot overcome on our own. And so God communicates to us even through the majesty of the heavens, that he cares for us and he stoops down to our level. One of the most beautiful ways that God chooses to display his majesty is through the fact that he gives us a testimony or a witness and communicates to us through the heavens. And so, as I said, I, I, I love being outdoors. And one of the things I've learned over the years is one of the ways that the Lord has ministered to me and does is through creation that creation in a very real sense becomes a sort of a dialogue partner for us in our hearts in in our minds and so when you and i see everything that he's given us to enjoy when we marvel at the vast expanse and the beauty of the heavens with the knowledge that god desires to care for us personally we should be overwhelmed and it should almost border on being unbelievable you see, if that weren't amazing enough, that God is mindful of you and I personally, and that he desires to care for us, we also see that he displays his majesty in and through us. And that's our second point, that God chooses to display his majesty in humanity. In verses 5 through 8 of the psalm here, he describes our role as being made in the image of God. And if you're not familiar with that term, in the creation account in Genesis 1, God says, let us make man in our image. And so what that means is that there's a sense in which God created man for a relationship with himself. And before um, we fell into sin, God created us as beings that were righteous and holy and able to have a perfect relationship with God. 
And God also gave us dominion over creation. That means that he gave us the responsibility and the privilege of exercising authority over the created order. And so here in Psalm 8, he's rehearsing that. He's saying that there's two ways that we're made in the image of God. First, that we have dominion over the created order. We have a relationship of responsibility with it. And second, he makes this incredible statement that we're made a little lower than the heavenly beings and that we're crowned in glory and honor. So just briefly, when he talks about dominion in 6 through 8 here, he's looking back at Genesis 1, as we mentioned, that not only are we created for a relationship with God, we're also created for a relationship with one another. We see that in the creation of man and woman, but also that we have a responsibility to care for creation. And one of the primary ways that we do is by exercising power over the animal kingdom by caring for it. And even though sin has entered into us and we no longer have the ability to look into creation and to care for it in the way that God originally designed us to, it's really interesting to note that he never rescinds that order. We're still given that responsibility. And even though we practice that imperfectly, it's an act of God's divine grace that we still have this relationship with the created order. And you know, it's inter- what's most interesting to me about this is that in all of in all of the animal kingdom, in, in every living being, we're the only creature that is able to have a self-awareness and a consciousness that we can stop and ask, what am I, in light of everything that you have made, that you are so mindful of me and you have given me this position of honor? And that points out the second half of verse 5, when he says that he has made man just a little lower than heavenly beings. You know, different versions, if you have different versions uh, of the Bible, uh, some of them say different things. Some will translate this as saying, uh, he is made a little lower than God, and other ones will say he's made a little lower than heavenly beings. It's not entirely uh, clear what he means by that, but what is clear in the main point is that God has, God is a heavenly being himself, and angels are heavenly beings as well, and that when we are made in the image of God, he's made us slightly lower than heavenly beings themselves. And what he's pointing out for us as people that are made in his image, that we're made um, as image bearers in the created order, and we're responsible to God for how we live and how we care for that created order and how we live in relation to him. And, you know, that is uh, interesting in light of a lot of what we hear today. We aren't made just slightly higher than the animal kingdom. You don't hear God saying that. He says that we are made just slightly lower than the heavenly kingdom. Uh, And 5b says that we're crowned with glory and honor. Look, you can ask my wife. She sees me first thing in the morning. The last thing she thinks is this is glorious. Um, But what he means is that... um, What he means is that because we're people that are made in his image, we have a special relationship with him. And that in some sense, we have this ethical imprint of God's nature on us. And that we're supposed to reflect that into the world and how we live both with him and both with uh, people. That means that we're designed, originally designed and meant to reflect God's glory as his image bearers. And when I thought about this, you know, it made me, it reminded me that this is actually uh, the only way that you and I are able to properly understand ourselves is by understanding how God has created us. The fact that we bear his image is the proper way for us to perceive 
who and what we are and how we're called to live. And it also is the only way that we can properly relate to others. You know, when we read in the New Testament that Jesus gives us uh, the greatest commandment, the greatest two commandments, the second one is that we're called to truly love our neighbor as ourselves. And the only way that we can do that is by first understanding that every one of our neighbors is in fact an image bearer, somebody that has been made in the image of God. One of the things that I love about this psalm is that it starts by pointing out that if we want to see the glory of God, all we have to do is look up into the heavens. And that's true. But what's even more amazing about that, and what is even more astounding to me, is that God is saying here that there is visions of God's glory, that we can see God's glory on display all around us, all the time. If we want to see God's glory, yes, we should look into creation and we do that and we see that. But an even more stunning display that you and I see and probably take for granted all the time of God's glory is when we look into the eyes of another human being. When you look at the person that's sitting next to you, you're seeing God's glory on display. When you look at the person who's in traffic next to you, you're seeing God's glory on display. You know, Jeannie and I were talking about this particular point and how much we take it for granted. And I said, yeah, you know, we look at a child, we're thinking about our youngest son, Jack, who was just born and how beautiful he was, even at the moment of his birth. And she's like, yeah, but everybody loves babies. Everybody says babies are beautiful. And she says, but think about, think about an old person who's lived a full long life, somebody who has wrinkles, scars, who's hunched over and walks with a cane. God says that that person is a display of his glory to you and I. You know, it reminded me of a friend that we had who was a member of our church named Don. We used to call him Air Guitar Don because every time that he would come to worship, he would play air guitar in service when he was worshiping the Lord. And he was glorious. And he'd wear a, a cap and a hat, a Dr. Zeus hat, a big red and white um, Dr. Zeus cap a lot of the time too. Don was a homeless man who had schizophrenia. He had lived on the streets for 14 years and he struggled with mental illness. He struggled with his emotional life. Um, sometimes he would come to service and you could smell him 20 feet away because it had been so long since he'd taken a shower. The man had so much dirt under his fingernails that they were black as night. And you know what? He was glorious. He was a glorious picture of God's majesty on display in him. And if we think about that, and even that's hard to believe, and we bring it closer to home, we can think about ourselves and how often we struggle to see that what God says about you and I. When you and I look in the mirror, what do we see when we see ourselves? 99% of the time, we see the unwanted lines and the extra wrinkles. We probably see the unwanted pounds. We see ourselves and what we see is things that disappoint us. We usually see our brokenness, our disappointments. We see the sin that corrupts us. But that's not what God sees. What Psalmate tells us that when God sees us, he sees something that he has made in a wonderful and fearfully beautiful way. That when he sees us, he sees something that's glorious because it's made in his very own image. Now that's not just a sweet sentiment. That's not just a sweet thought. That's hard for you and I to believe and to apply to ourselves. 
That's actually a life-changing reality for every one of us, especially for us that are disciples of Jesus. And you know, this point, this was the hardest part of the sermon to write because this point in and of itself is so important in light of everything that's going on in the world right now, everything that we're dealing with in American culture especially, this is so relevant. You know, we are living in a world where literally there are a hundred voices that are screaming into our lives like megaphones that are vying for our attention, telling us what we should believe, what we should care about, what's important, why we should care about it, who we should care about, what we should say and how we should say it and how we're wrong if we don't. And not all of those things are bad, but not all of them are coming from the right source. But if we set all that aside just for a moment and we look at this, we look at God's word to see what God's word says about us, it's very simple and it's very clear. Because what it says is that you and I are made in the image of God. And when we see that, we see that we are designed to be people who are literally pro-life in every sense of the term. We are people who are called to celebrate and lift up and honor life because we see the very glory of God represented in human life itself. And that's not just whatever particular issue tends to be the pressing injustice of the day. That means that we should be people who are constantly speaking to every injustice that we see in the world. We are people who are called to always be against abortion because it's abhorrent and it takes the life of an image bearer. We're called to be people who speak against racial injustice because it is an injustice that is perpetrated against people simply for the color of their skin. People who bear the image of God and all their different wonderful complexities. It makes us people who realize and are convicted by the truth that because we all bear the image of God, injustice in and of itself is intolerable. But it also highlights the great tragedy of what you and I experience with this. You see, the truth is, is that that glory and that honor that you and I possess, that God says that we have because we're made in his image, is also marred by sin. You know, the longer that I'm a Christian, and this I've been reminded of this just even in the last couple of weeks, the longer that I'm a Christian, I become more and more convinced that one of the most dangerous and insidious parts of our old sinful nature is the spiritual apathy that it brings into our life. That before too long, a spiritual apathy creeps into our lives. And the hard reality for every one of us is that sooner or later, the emotionality of seeing an injustice kind of wears off. And our hearts grow wearying at seeing injustice after injustice after injustice after injustice in the fallen world. And we grow, as much as we, won't, we don't like to admit it, we grow more and more apathetic to the injustices that we see and experience all around us. Also injustices that we participate in without knowing it or not. You see, without intervention, what we realize is that before too long, we're left in a spiritual haze. We become apathetic again. We grow into a false sense of comfort and we become apathetic. And without a supernatural intervention, without help 
We all fall back into that. We've experienced it before. The tragic reality is that every one of us are going to fight that and experience that now, and we'll experience it again. And the central truth of the scripture is that we need an intervention. We need help. Every one of us needs somebody to save us from that. And that's the third point, that God's majesty is most perfectly displayed through his son. You know, God has this wonderful, persistent way of taking things that are nothing in the world and making them into something beautiful. Uh, he has this amazing ability to take things that seem hopeless, things that seem irreversibly broken and tragic, and redeeming them in a way that displays his glory and his love and his beauty. God displays his majesty through the things that appear feeble and weak to the world to shame it. We saw that um, in the gospel passage that we read earlier, and you know, that even is spoken about in this psalm, there's one verse in the psalm, when I, when I read this, there's one verse that almost at first glance seems like it, stuck, it sticks out, like it's not um, meant to be in there. It's almost out of place in some sense. And it's verse 2, where David writes, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And, you know, if you read that just in Psalm 8, you're like, what? I, I don't understand what he's talking about here. But when you see how it's used in the New Testament, especially how Jesus quotes it, it makes sense. In Matthew 21, just a bit of context, in Matthew 21, uh, Jesus has literally just cleansed the temple. He's um, railing against the Pharisees and the people who have allowed his house of worship to become a den of iniquity. And all around he's healing people and all around him are these children who are singing praises to him. And they're saying, Hosanna to to the son of David. And the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they are incredulous. They're insulted and angry. And they said, are they, are you hearing this? Are you hearing what they're saying about you? And Jesus replies by quoting verse two out of the Psalm. He says, yes. Have you never heard out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise for yourself. You see much to their, uh, much to their chagrin, God's glory and majesty is revealed through things that appear feeble and foolish in the world's eyes. And God displays his glory and his majesty in ways that the world would never expect. Uh, we saw that in reading 1 Corinthians in our gospel passage. And I want to read a section of it again in light of what we've been considering right here. That God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. That's you and I, as Rob pointed out so well. That God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. That God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And he goes on to say, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that is, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, God stoops down and he raises you and I up from positions of weakness and foolishness to positions of honor and glory that he gives to us, not ones that we have because of who we are or what we do. And if that isn't shocking enough, the most stunning example that we have is in the life of Jesus himself. We see this 
incredible example of something that seems to end in apparent weakness really is God's greatest display of strength. Jesus himself was born as a baby, lived in human flesh with all the frailties and the temptations that, that a human being experiences. And he even experienced a, a, a horrible death on the cross, which seemed to end in total failure. But that's at the heart of the gospel. That's what it's all about, that God displays his majesty perfectly through his son, through his life and his work, through his death and also his resurrection. You know, there's another place uh, that the New Testament quotes this psalm, and that's in Hebrews. The author of Hebrews in chapter 2 is talking about how Jesus is the author of our salvation. And in Hebrews 2, 6 through 8, he quotes Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. And he uses it to describe the fact that in the new heavens and the new earth, that all things in, heavens and earth, in the heaven and earth will be placed under Jesus' foot, and that all of the created order, the new heavens, the new earth, will all be subjected to his rule. And if you read the psalm at first glance, it's, it's hard to see how that should be applied to Jesus. It doesn't seem like that's a messianic psalm or a psalm that should be applied to the Messiah that we see talked about in the Old Testament. The psalm itself at ground zero talks about humanity in general and how we're made in the image of our creator. Uh, but as we noted, the psalm also talks about the glory of God displayed in man. And while for you and I, uh, we know that we retain much of the honor that God has given us, we also know that that image has been marred by our own brokenness and sin. And so when we read Psalm 8 in light of the New Testament, what we see is that it's also looking forward beyond its own horizon. It's looking forward to the only person who can display God's glory perfectly in their own life. You see, in Jesus, you and I have the perfect representation of humanity that displays the glory of God. And that's because Jesus perfectly honored God in his humanity, in his life, in his work, by being sinless. And in his divine nature, he's also perfectly glorious in every aspect of who he is as God. And so when we think about that, going back to something that I mentioned earlier, to the incredible fact that God is in fact mindful of you and I in a very personal way, and that he desires to care for you and I in a personal way. We see that Psalm 8 points us to the one who will return us to that perfect glory and to that dignity that God says that he created us to possess, that we've lost in our fall in sin. At his return, when Christ returns, he will practice perfect dominion over all the new heavens and the new earth. And as you and I are made perfect with him in our salvation and our spiritual growth, as he redeems us, we are made perfect and holy just in the way God says we will be. And we're made to rule with him. That's one of the greatest promises in the New Testament. That if we suffer with Christ, we will also reign with him. So, but what does that mean for you and I? now in the here and now especially in light of the world that we're living in that just seems to be going to hell in a handbasket <laughs> please lord jesus speak it to us first and foremost if there's anything that i want you and i to take away from this psalm this morning is that we get to live with the incredibly comforting truth that the majesty and the glory of god 
can never be taken away because of our sinfulness, that it cannot be stopped by our brokenness, that the glory of God is displayed perfectly, first and foremost, in Jesus himself. And through our faith in him, we're being perfected to that same glory ourselves. That also means that you and I have been liberated and we're free to live our lives as agents of grace. That through that faith in Jesus, knowing that he's done that perfectly for us, that we don't have to, we're free to be agents of grace who do reflect God's mercy in the world, even though it's imperfectly, who do reflect his goodness, even though we're not perfectly good, who reflect his beauty, even though we don't see ourselves as beautiful all the time, who reflect his truth and his justice and especially his mercy to all of humanity and all of creation. Not because we can do that without sin, but simply as expressions of our gratitude to our Father in heaven, who's done it perfectly through his Son for us. A Father who's always mindful of us and it always perfectly cares for us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Father, for all the ways that you... Um, we thank you for all the ways that you remind us of your majesty and your beauty and your power. And we thank you for the ways that, you're, that you direct that power toward us on our behalf and not against us. That you work to overcome the sin and the brokenness that makes it so difficult for us to see the majesty and the glory that you possess. And for us to see the position of honor and glory that you've given us just as image bearers. And even more so as your sons and daughters, that through Christ we are being redeemed and that we will one day be um, perfect in righteousness and holiness and that we won't suffer under the weight and the guilt and the brokenness of the injustice that we see in this world. We pray that you would make us agents who speak that truth, the truth of the gospel, into the world, period, because it reflects who you are and who you've called us to be. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.